Hello and welcome to the Frontier Markets podcast. I'm Krish and I'm incredibly excited to have our guest today, Sven Lorenz. Sven Lorenz runs a fantastic blog called Undervalued Shares and it was one of the most kind of formative uh, pieces of reading that I did when I was kind of like starting to learn about Frontier Markets. There's some fantastic case studies on nations ranging from Venezuela to Iraq to Guyana. And he essentially looks at these developing and frontier markets and tells the stories of the investors that have seeks to bring kind of capital to some of these regions. And he hits upon some fantastic uh, and exciting kind of characteristics that have emerged from that. Now, I'm super excited to kind of like, you know, have him on the podcast. And I'd like to start by just, you know, saying hello to Sven and um, having him introduce himself in terms of his backstory as it relates to his investing career and as it relates to broader observations in his history within frontier markets as a whole. Hi, Krish. It's de- I'm delighted to be here and I'm very excited that you are starting this new blog and this new website and research service. I'm only too happy to contribute to that, um, hopefully not just today, but again in the future. Frontier markets is something that I have had a lifelong passion about, and I've, I kind of fell into this, really. It started for me probably in the early 90s, which was the time just after the Berlin Wall had come down, and obviously Eastern Europe and Central Europe were frontier markets at the time. I mean, difficult as that may be to imagine nowadays. My very first hands-on frontier market experience was in it must have been 93 or 94, I took a train from Germany to Prague in the Czech Republic because I had stumbled across some information about a software company that was listed on the Prague Stock Exchange, but also trading OTC in Germany, which meant I was able to trade the stock quite easily. And I had found some indications that the stock was trading at an extraordinarily low valuation. But information was very hard to come by. So I figured what better thing to do than to reach out to the company and just head over there and meet with the people in charge and ask them all the questions that I was curious about. So I took this night train to Prague, which was quite adventurous at the time. I mean, we didn't have chicken on board, but you know, it wasn't wasn't far short of, of that sort of circumstance. And I met with that company and that company was called PVT at the time. And in talking to the management, I realized they were trading at a price earnings ratio of just two and they had more cash on the balance sheet than the entire company was worth. So this was an absolute no brainer. And that set me off to my journey of frontier investing. It became a very good investment because with that valuation, there was really only one way and that was up. And eventually investors did discover that and I made a very nice profit on the back of that. And it also taught an interesting lesson about finding opportunities in frontier markets that are almost too good to be true, that are overlooked and where you can gain a real edge by doing research on the ground. So this is my this was my start in frontier market investing. Fantastic. It very much reminds me of an anecdote from Bill Browder's autobiography, where he mentions his kind of um, shock at seeing the price to earnings ratios and the uh, balance sheets of some of these companies that were trading at a discount to the assets that they kind of had at the time. Um, I'm wondering, 
given that's kind of your story, are there any other stories or case studies that you found particularly inspiring as it relates to uh, capturing the spirit of effective frontier markets investing? Oh, there's so many. And I mean, you can really, I mean, start off this entire discussion with defining what is really a frontier market. Frontier markets have been around for centuries. You can go back to the East India Company. They were operating in a frontier market. I've recently reported on my website, undervaluedshares.com, about a real estate-related company in the States that was set up at a time when Queens, the borough of New York, was basically woodlands, and they purchased very cheap real estate in the 1880s, uh, and the company is still benefiting from that. So frontier market investing really rings through the ages. Some of the more recent examples that were during my lifetime, I think the number one example that everyone who listens to this will probably be both interested in and have heard about already was, was Gazprom in the 1990s. And that is such, it's a slightly overused case study, but it's probably just simply the best one because it ticks so many boxes. It was a company that everyone had heard of that you were sort of familiar enough with to have the courage to invest into because it was the largest enterprise in Russia at the time. The product was something that you could understand, gas and a little bit of oil. And its stock, in a way, was quite the stereotypical frontier market investment case at the time in the sense that, for example, it was quite difficult to invest into it because the Russians didn't want foreigners to just hover up cheap Gazprom shares. So you had to go through some entities, some legal structures, usually involving Cyprus, um, to, in a way, you know, get around some restrictions. And everyone knew that was happening. No one did anything against it, which is the widely accepted practice. And there is this wonderful story that I also once reported about on my website, and you mentioned it, of, of Adolf Lundin, the, the late billionaire, who uh, was looking for frontier market opportunities in Russia. And he picked up a stake in Gazprom for an investment of reportedly $10 million. And at some point, he was up 500 times. So this was a, a billion billionaire-making investment. There were quite some ups and downs. He also uh, held his stakes through, I believe, the 98 um, sovereign bond crisis of Russia. And uh, he later on faced some restrictions or some, some difficulties with margin calls. But on the whole, this was one of the greatest frontier market investments in, in living memory. And there are plenty of other examples. I mean, I worked with someone once, um, Jim Mellon, who is widely reported in the media many years ago um, to have basically, at the time, he traveled to Russia with his business partner because there were these voucher privatizations going on where Russian citizens received vouchers that they could exchange into shares of state-owned companies. And the Russians didn't really, many Russians didn't know what to do with these vouchers or, you know, how much potential they had. And Jim Mellon and his business partner flew over there with a suitcase of cash, two million. And they had no information at all about these underlying companies that they were indirectly investing into. They just basically bought vouchers to invest into anything that had oil or gas in its name. And uh, six weeks later, their investment had gone up from 2 million to 17 million, one seven. And then they sold everything and instead set up a fund management company to invest in Russia and emerging markets, where they eventually ended up investing billions in these regions. Um, 
these are just some of the stories I could probably go on for ages and also go back a bit further in time. Like I remember in the 1980s, one of the great frontier market investments was a company called Philippine Long Distance, which is still trading on the New York Stock Exchange. And it obviously says in the name, it's a, um, a telephone company. And the stock went up by about 100 between 1984 and 1994. And, you know, all you had to invest into was a monopoly company. I, I mean, you know, how safe a business model can you have than to actually operate the phone network of a country as a monopolist? And still it was possible to make 100 times your money in the space of, of 10 years. And history is littered with these examples. There are so many of them. Someone, you know, maybe maybe you should make it a... Um, a challenge for yourself to eventually write a book about it. <laughs> I think you'd find lots of contributors for individual chapters. Fantastic. I think that's actually a uh, plan that I look forward to kind of like trying to take on, building these kinds of you know, case studies, uh, building a repository um, of these case studies. Um, one of the things I'd hope to learn, and I'm going to ask you right now, is what do you think some of the high-level characteristics of these firms and individuals have been that have enabled them to succeed within frontier markets without getting their faces ripped off, essentially. Uh, I think we've both spoken before about the book, Mr. China, which talks about a fellow who kind of decides to invest after China starts opening up and ends up losing quite a bit of money. Um, I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on the the appropriate kind of characteristics or lessons we can learn from these individuals? Well, I think outside of having to avoid getting your face ripped off, there is probably a prior step to that. I think these individuals all showed extraordinary amounts of courage and it does take courage to invest in frontier markets. And it starts with a very basic notion or misconception, I think, that it's really dangerous to go into these countries. You know, you will get killed or you will get robbed at gunpoint, etc., etc. I've been a lifelong adventurous traveler, adventurous in the sense that I'm I'm not seeking out stupid risks, but I, I travel, I, I have traveled to almost any region in the world. And I've been to all sorts of countries for which sometimes there were actual official travel advisories not to go there. And I mean, I, I don't travel to these places lightly. I do my own research. And I just have to say that generally the notion that these countries, these frontier markets are dangerous, are uh, 80% of them are just entirely wrong. And you, you travel to these countries and you find, you know, they're not any less safe than walking down the street in London with a Rolex on your watch, where nowadays you get, you know, robbed um, in Western countries for for showing a bit of wealth in public. Um, there's a certain intellectual courage as well, because you need to invest into companies where maybe some pieces of information are missing. There is uh, a lack of transparency or you have to be you have to work extra hard to establish what the facts are uh, that requires some courage as well but that's where the opportunity lies um, if you want to make a hundred times or 500 times your money as as mr london did or the early investors of philippine long distance they had to invest at a time when things were not perfect yet and that's really the whole point of it um, if things were perfect, then the stocks would be priced for perfection and there'd be no valuation differential to be exploited by you. Along the way, you have to avoid what you mentioned, getting your face ripped off. And that mostly comes, I think, in the form of liquidity risk. 
buying stocks in these countries often comes with a much increased problem of liquidating your position, either because there's just generally not that much trading liquidity or because these countries quite often or all too often um, have some experience, some kind of crisis along the way where, where trading just completely dries up or, or maybe even the stock market closes down. You know, these things are um, these things do happen and you need to be able to withstand both financially and also emotionally the the issue of potentially your investment might lose quite a lot temporarily and you might not be able to sell. And that's something you have to manage very carefully. And all that being said, I think the third factor that set these individuals apart is a certain degree of optimism as well. Um, I think over the decades, despite all these crises that these countries also experienced on the whole, they all, well, not all, but like most of them became richer and more affluent and um, uh, just simply more developed. And you have to believe in the world largely moving in the right direction. If you are of a doom and gloom nature, then you obviously will not believe that a what is now a frontier country has the chance to be a you know uh, more of a developing country or even a developed country uh, within the next 10, 20 or 25 years, like a, a period that you know a, a human can base um, investments around. Uh, a good example for that, by the way, is Poland, which went from, I mean, effectively, for all intents and purposes, Poland was a frontier market in the early 90s, and it's now been reclassed as a de developed country. So, you know, that's uh, it, it took 30, 30 plus years, but it's an entirely feasible um, investment horizon for someone who starts investing in their 20s and 30s. Um, and you have to believe that these countries on the whole are moving in the right direction. That certainly has to be part of your mindset. Interesting. I'm wondering, uh, one thing you mentioned was, you know, the difficulties in kind of executing trades and difficulties in kind of managing liquidity risk. Um, how have things changed over the last, say, 20, 30 years as it relates to the infrastructure for interacting with these markets? Do you think things have kind of like markedly improved in terms of like information um, or other types of you know pieces of infrastructure? I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Oh, well, nowadays you have this amazing thing called the internet, if you've heard of it, which, you know, I remember the days when that didn't exist and you had to actually send a letter to these countries and ask for an annual report to be posted your way so that you could learn about what the company was actually doing. I think what has changed completely and that changes how how we can nowadays approach these markets from an investment perspective what has changed completely is not just the availability of information everything is on the web somewhere and you even have google translate so if you don't speak the language of the country and there's no english language annual report yet then you know you just copy and paste it into google google translate and and there you go uh what has changed markedly and the importance of that cannot be overstated is access to these markets. Certainly you can't just ring up any high street bank or any discount brokerage firm and ask them to execute trades somewhere in the, in the depths of Africa or in central Asia. But first of all, you have, um, for example, interactive brokers who are a widely known example of a brokerage firm that is accessible to most investors and which 
actually executes trades in what I would describe as most countries that are worth mentioning. And then when it comes to frontier markets, you you probably won't be able to go to them through something like interactive brokers even, but you can certainly open a brokerage account there through the internet or possibly even using an app. Um, I think there are some great trading apps, for example, for Turkish stocks, I believe, Turkey being quite difficult to access right now. Um, but I think something can be done with apps um, that are sort of like the local version of Robin Hood. I know there's a, a Robin Hood equivalent now in Pakistan. Um, I've traveled to Uzbekistan and I could have opened easily a brokerage account there by just, you know, literally going into a brokerage firm. And in a way, this is also the great opportunity that your generation has, because um, I remember in the early 2000s, I was on a cross cross Africa trip. And for most of these countries, it would have been so tedious to open a brokerage account, mostly because it also still involved the post or or using a courier. And nowadays with the internet, that's all become a lot easier. So whereas it's not easy and you don't want it to be easy because that would mean these, you know, these markets would be discovered or would have been discovered already. Um, I think you can see the change and you can see the direction into which this is heading. And if you now suddenly see Robin Hood equivalents in Pakistan and Turkey, then you know what's going to happen to valuations in these markets in the medium term. And that's that's the opportunity for you to exploit. Fantastic. And for listeners here who are eager to explore more in this direction, what would you say your top three to four tools are as it relates to um, research or resources in this um, in this vein? Oh, well, um, it's a slightly difficult one, but it's also a, a good question in the sense that, I mean, it's difficult because there is no central repository for researching frontier markets. If there was one, then you wouldn't have to start your blog. And if there was one, then valuations in these markets would have been quite different already than they are. Um, there are some good websites to get started. And um, I mean, I, I think... As a good example, I love the website of Sturgeon Capital, which is a frontier market fund manager based out of London. They provide a lot of very worthwhile material in their podcasts and their articles that they're publishing, mostly around Central Asia. But uh, so, yeah, Central Asia, but it's um it's relevant for other parts of the world as well. I think a bit of a hidden resource that's quite fun to use and quite useful is the website of um. Uh, the name escapes me right now, Asia Frontier Capital. Um, if you look closely on their website, you will find that they have country profiles about a lot of frontier markets where they may not even have a fund there, but they, they have profiles of these countries on there. Um, like Papua New Guinea, for example, you know, you'd normally be quite challenged to find something about the stock market of Papua New Guinea. And at least they've got some, some basic information and links to local, local brokerage firms. And then last but certainly not least, I would recommend something that I always call the brute force approach to research, which basically means go to the website of the stock exchange of a country that you're interested in and download the list of all listed companies and then manually research every single one of them. This is obviously not a very sophisticated approach, but highly productive for finding overlooked investment opportunities. And it forces you to do it in a very systematic approach. You you go through the names from A to Z, so there's no emotion involved. 
and you find a lot of gems and there are some um some some good rules how to find interesting companies for example if you if you come across a company where the name just doesn't give away anything at all what the business actually is about then i think that's always worth taking a look at um over time you'll 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 find some rules for yourself how to use that approach but that is probably the most productive way to look at these markets look at everything wonderful um you mentioned Sturgeon Capital's focus on Central Asia, and previously you mentioned a great growth story in the form of Poland, which started as a frontier and nascent developing market. And recently, um, there's a fantastic uh, excerpt from Tyler Cowen's Marginal Revolution, where he mentions that if Poland sustains its current growth rate for another decade, it'll surpass Britain in GDP, um, <laughs> which is insane. Um, and so I'm wondering, in terms of your current radar right now, what are some regions that you're kind of tracking and that you consider to be potential growth stories for the next decade or so? Um, please. So obviously the world has become much more developed over the last two or three decades, and there are probably not many regions left, but the one that is the most obvious one and quite probably also the most interesting one is certain is, is Central Asia. And what is so interesting there is the lack of a local tech ecosystem. These countries just don't have what we know as PayPal, Amazon, um, and all these companies that we use on a daily basis. Uh, the American firms that provide these services usually don't work quite the same way in these countries. So they need to create their local champions. And I mean, we mentioned Sturgeon Capital already. They're, they're high profile and they're very good people who have made it their speciality to look into the developing of a local tech ecosystem in Central Asia. Uh, and they've certainly done so for a, for a good reason. It's a large region. It's super underdeveloped, but it's a it, it's got a, an educated population. It's at the crossroads of different economic regions. So they're benefiting from trade between these regions as well. And I mean, when you want to speak of frontier market regions, then I think this is probably the number one region in the world to now speak about. That being said, I'd say there's still a surprisingly large number of countries that are interesting to look at individually, even though they you know, may not be necessarily in a region that you can call it's a frontier market region. Uh, and then there's also quite simply the question, what exactly is a frontier market? Because there's a lot of, you know, it's not just all black and white. There's a lot of gray. There are some countries that probably qualify as a frontier market in some way, but are a bit more developed already in other ways. Uh, I mean, off the top of my head, some interesting countries to look at are probably, I mentioned Papua New Guinea already. No one ever looks at the stock market in Papua New Guinea. I mean, I, I haven't heard anyone ever mention that country to me, which makes me curious about it. Um, there's, say, Bangladesh, which has a very large population and is a badly underdeveloped country, but it's now on the move. Um, you've got Vietnam, which is already more developed, but is still, I think, at a point of its development where growth rates can be quite high. Uh, you've got completely overlooked countries like Ethiopia, for example, in Africa. That's something I would look at. Uh, and then you've got countries that, in a way, are not frontier markets, but maybe 
forgotten and overlooked to a degree that they're almost frontier markets from an investment perspective. I mean, think of Uruguay or think of Cyprus. You know, when did last when did someone mention to you the stock market in Cyprus, which I think is actually super interesting. It's a European Union nation, so it's, it's anything but a frontier market. But um, its stock market, I think, has connotations of a frontier stock market. That makes it very interesting. Same for Uruguay. They've got a, a small number of listed companies over there. Um, really, the, world, the world's your oyster. And I guess you will inevitably end up having listeners to this podcast all over the world. And there's always a benefit to actually going to these places and doing research on the ground. So depending on where someone is based, they will have a bias towards something that might be a bit closer to home because it's easier for them to reach. But we're bottom line, we're not running out of frontier markets anytime soon. There's still loads of opportunities out there. Fantastic. And if I were to ask you to say, you know, circle around one of those uh, nations that you've mentioned and walk us through some of what you believe to be the interesting opportunities within these uh, nations that you're kind of like more familiar um, with, would you be able to do that, please? Uh, well, the ones that I've just mentioned, I haven't really researched in depth in the last couple of weeks. So I'd, I'd struggle a bit to give you very specific examples, but I can talk conceptually maybe, and maybe that's actually more useful for your for your um, followers to hear a bit more about the, the broad scope of potential investments that you can find in these places. And I mean, it always starts with most of these countries have some kind of blue chip companies, uh, which sometimes even trade on international stock exchanges. So sometimes you get lucky and you can buy a frontier market blue chip company on the OTC market in somewhere in Western Europe or in the States. Uh, or, or it might be easier to at least buy them through a local brokerage firm and they have a bit more liquidity. And going back to the example I mentioned in the beginning, Philippine long distance was certainly such an example. Uh, then depending on people's willingness to invest their own research, their, the, the, to invest their own time into research, you might be better off just buying an investment fund, an equity fund. Uh, and I mentioned Asia Frontier Capital earlier today. Uh, and they run a range of equity funds in different countries. I wrote about the Iraq fund once. And I mean, truth be told, I mean, I mean uh, I'm adventurous and I'm quite willing to put in legwork. Would I go about researching the entire Iraqi market to create some exposure for myself? I think I'd probably just go for an equity fund that invests there and go with an established player like Asia Frontier Capital. Then you've got venture capital funds. And I mean, venture capital and private equity, I think, sits pretty much um, next to each other. And the, the, the difference is sometimes a bit difficult to distinguish. Uh, and for that, you've got companies like Sturgeon Capital running some great fund products that can make your life a lot easier and give you access to opportunities that you genuinely couldn't get access to yourself as an individual investor. And um, last but not least, occasionally you find a western company a european or american company that is listed on one of our stock exchanges in london or new york or frankfurt or wherever and sometimes these companies invest in these countries or they even focus solely on such a country quite often that's the case with mining companies so if you go um very good research tip is um if you go through the list of mining companies listed on the london stock exchange especially on the aim market there are a lot of mining companies that, or, or resource company, can be oil and gas as well, that operate exclusively in some frontier market. 
So rather than to buy stocks in the frontier market country itself, you can buy something on the London Stock Exchange that has 100% of its activities in a frontier market. So I think this summarizes the scope and the availability of, of options to investors. And, you know, again, the, world, the world's your oyster. You have to pick what you like the best and what's the most suitable for you. Fantastic. And if we're talking about, for example, you know, almost the frontier of frontiers in some sense, which is perhaps a place that's currently in crisis or has just recovered from a crisis. Um, one of my favorite pieces of yours is talking about the Venezuela um, opportunity that exists. Would you be able to run us through that? I'd love it to have the listeners kind of be aware of like your logic and thinking on that. It was one of my favorite uh, pieces from your blog. Venezuela is an interesting case study for a country that came out of nowhere, got incredibly rich, and then fell back to where it came from almost. Venezuela is known for having one of the largest reserves of, of oil and also quite a lot of gas. And in the 70s, they got incredibly rich on the back of that. There was, And that's a little known fun fact about Venezuela. There was even a weekly service with Concorde, the supersonic jet, from Europe to Venezuela because there were so many very wealthy Venezuelans flying back and forth to places like Paris to go shopping and spend their money. And then Venezuela went through some very difficult political periods and that involved Hugo Chavez, the late dictator. And it's now descended into being an economic basket case where about five years ago, People were literally eating out of um, trash bins because the country was facing a, a crisis of starvation. It's improved again recently, but Venezuela is politically, internationally quite isolated. The United States have sanctions against the country. The oil industry has collapsed to a point where it's just producing a tiny fraction of the oil that it used to produce. And a large a very significant percentage of the population has left the country and they've become economic migrants all over Latin America. Wherever you go in Latin America, you'll find um, Venezuelans working as, as, as economic migrants and, and being illegal immigrants or asylum seekers. And the country has literally bled dry, but there's still a lot of very good assets in place. They built an incredibly high quality infrastructure at the time when they were in, in better condition and that infrastructure, parts of it at least, are still there. The population is very educated. The oil is certainly still there and we're now suddenly realizing that we probably need oil a bit longer than, than many people thought. And the United States has recently been rethinking its sanctions, not the least since they also need the oil. And Venezuela may be an exciting recovery place. So is it a frontier country? Uh, you know, it's difficult again. And as I said, there's a lot of gray in between black and white. It's not strictly speaking a frontier country, but it's been it's been bombed back into, um, you know, almost frontier country status. And you can probably find frontier country type investments on its stock market and also in probably real estate and in, in its uh, publicly traded debt on which it has defaulted. Oodles of opportunity, very much a lack of transparency. It's difficult to get access. I mean, it's all the stuff that frontier market investors should love. And um, Venezuela, I certainly want to watch. 
Fantastic. And um, one more anecdote that I'd love to query you on is uh, we mentioned Adolf London at the beginning of the podcast. Um, you've written a fantastic piece on Guyana. I would love for you to kind of share the story of Guyana and what your kind of current thesis on that region is, which actually, if I'm not mistaken, is near Venezuela as well. Yes, it's it's literally just in the same neighborhood. I, I have to keep this somewhat high um, high level because I haven't looked at the details recently. I, I wrote this piece sometime last year. The long and short of it is that Guyana is a tiny country with a very small population and they discovered oil offshore. And because of the small population, the potential per capita income that Guyana could generate out of exploiting these oil resources is just completely off the scale. So they could become a bit like, you know, the Kuwaitis in the Middle East in the sense that you you have a small population, very high oil income, and then suddenly everyone goes from having almost nothing to being among the richest people on the planet. Uh, somewhere along the way, some oil companies are probably going to make a lot of money. The London family is in there. I think Exxon is a large player. Um, there are a couple of plays listed on on Western stock exchanges as well, how to benefit from the whole Guyana boom. They never had as much as a proper stock exchange where you could really buy local stocks. So I think the way to play Guyana is probably more through some Western companies that are exploiting the country. Uh, it's It's a bit of a ground floor opportunity. The figures behind it are just absolutely staggering. And it's real frontier market stuff. Um, 10 or 20 years ago, if you had told anyone about Guyana having any kind of prospect in the world economically, you know, they would have laughed at you. And suddenly things are looking very different. Fantastic. Um, actually, I, I my curiosity is getting the best of me. We just mentioned Venezuela and you mentioned uh, Qatar. Um what do you think would be required for Guyana to move closer to Qatar than Venezuela in terms of its development? And what opportunities would emerge if it were to be more of a Qatar type of success story beyond just the natural resources? Do you think there's a real chance to kind of invest in other industries that would kind of be propped up as a result of this uh, massive income expansion? That's the big question and the big worry with regards to Guyana, because ultimately for a country to move from frontier markets to developed of some kind, you need to have some kind of governance structure in place as well. And as we all know, Latin America is not exactly known for solid and reliable governance structures and um, stable governments. It can be a bit of a curse to suddenly have too much money. And you probably know this statistic that um, I think of all lottery winners after about seven years, uh, is it a third or half of them have lost everything? There's a high percentage of suicides, et cetera, et cetera. And the resource curse is not too different. A lot of countries end up wasting the money that um, they ended up making quickly and easily from exploiting their, their natural resources. Guyana has its challenges worked out because it used to be such an underdeveloped country in such a politically instable region that, you know, the odds you could argue the odds are not looking too much in their favor for them to actually, you know, make something of this opportunity rather than to just waste it all and end up being bad in a bad, back in a bad in a bad spot. Mm-hmm. That being said, the obvious one is always real estate. And if I looked at investing into one of these countries outside of 
the resource sector, I think the first thing to move up will be real estate. And that's probably also, in a way, the safest asset class. I mean, not safe, but safest relative to <laughs> relative to many other opportunities that will arise in these in these countries. It is very much a long haul bet, and it comes with all sorts of question marks. I think for Guyana, I'd probably stick to the resource companies for now. Brilliant. Cool. Um, thank you so much, Sven. Uh, do you have any final calls to action or prompts for our listeners um, or any words of advice before we end this interview? Yeah, I think there are two aspects that I'd like to comment on a bit further. And I think, first of all, and this is not supposed to sound like a downer, but I think it's important to keep in mind that the opportunities in frontier markets are also not that dissimilar from more developed countries. You have, you know, all the usual risks of entrepreneurs and executives making the wrong decisions, companies taking on too much debt, uh, 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 corporate strategies, misestimating demand trends. So keep in mind that there's no, it's not a one-way street just because it's a frontier market. You, you can find very basic mistakes being made by the companies that you can invest in over there. And to really exploit this opportunity, I can only advise again and again that you need to have some kind of local presence. I think you should travel there and ideally more than once and ideally across a number of years as you build your investment portfolio there. You need to have a certain degree of passion. You need to be really interested in that sort of opportunity. Uh, and you need to be 200% committed to make it work. This is not something you can just casually do on the side, as is true with any investment. You can't just casually place some bets and then you know count on that um, paying off. Uh, it's also probably one of the most fun ways of investing because you learn so much about highly unusual jurisdictions and countries and, and situations. And by going there, you, you immerse yourself in the subject matter in a very different way than you would if you just went to a corporate presentation in London or in New York in a five-star hotel somewhere in a conference room. So it's certainly fun, you know, read a lot, read widely, go back decades, start with, for example, reading um, Jim Rogers' book from the early 90s, the, the what, what was it called? The capitalist biker um, when he took his motorbike to travel around the world and visit all the adventure capitalist adventure capitalist sorry that was the one yeah um, i wasn't too far off you know um look look back at what previous generations of frontier market investors have done and all the mistakes they've committed but also all the fun they had uh and you know rest assured this opportunity is still very much alive it'll be around for a couple more decades i think um there's a lot of undeveloped um, underdeveloped countries on this planet. So, you know, immerse yourself, have fun, do it properly and, and manage your risks very carefully along the lines of what I mentioned in this podcast. Wonderful. I appreciate the optimistic and adventurous points towards the end. I think there's not just a case to be made for the asymmetric kind of financial returns, not just the impact, but also I think there's a kind of you know, spiritual sense of adventure that can exist in pursuing these opportunities. So thank you so much for sharing uh, some of the lessons you've learned over the years in partaking and shaping these markets. And um, I look forward to seeing how things evolve moving forward in the future. Thanks so much, Chris. Good luck with the blog and keep me posted.
Thank you so much.